Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, episode number 63. At the time of this recording, Bitcoins are trading at $232 each, and everybody's favorite, LTB coin, is trading at .000133 US dollars each. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Now that's gravy. Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, and thanks for joining me as I podcast today from East Nashville, Tennessee, with my trusty Siberian Husky, Maxwell, right by my side. Say hello, Maxwell. (laughs) We're two Bitcoin enthusiasts who love talking about Bitcoins and sharing what we learn with you, the listener. Longtime listeners, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your generous tips. And new listeners, we hope you enjoy the show. On today's show, I travel to beautiful San Diego, California for a conversation with my good friend Paul Puey, the founder and CEO of Airbits.co. The Airbits wallet is a leap forward for Bitcoin wallets where data is strongly encrypted on each user's device using each individual user's login and password. The Airbits wallet does not host user funds on their servers, so your chance of being goxed is nil. Zero. Nunca. Nada. With metadata options, the Airbits wallet is one of the most user-friendly and intuitive wallets in existence. We also hear from Reverend Johnny, who preaches up a storm on this beautiful blue-sky springtime day here in East Nashville with a message that will entertain you and fortify you as we move into yet another week of life here on planet Earth. Hang in there with me, friends. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and welcome Paul Puey, the CEO and co-founder of Airbits.co. Paul, welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy. Hey, happy to be on the show. Thanks a lot, John. The last time I saw you, I think, was at the bookstore there in Austin. What's the name of that bookstore? Uh, It is Brave New Books, which is an epicenter for Bitcoin and freedom-minded people in Austin. So it's been around for quite some time. I think it was actually the very first brick-and-mortar business to accept Bitcoin in all of Texas, from what I've heard. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that was a great place, man. They had some great political art on the walls, and uh, I interviewed the owner. He was a great guy, and uh, just a fun evening of uh, pizza and beer, and remember the pizza delivery guy showed up. Yep, that was awesome. (laughs) And somebody, who was it? Somebody set him up with a wallet, right? Yeah, he got set up with a wallet, and he probably pocketed, I think, $40, $50 worth in tips just that (laughs) night alone from one drop-off of, like, you know, a handful of pizzas, so... He made pretty good bank. Yeah, that was so cool. And, it, you know, obviously he's a Bitcoiner for life, I would assume, after this. I, I know I tipped two bucks and everybody just kept tipping the guy. And then uh, yeah. they wouldn't let him leave. They kept tipping. And that was so much fun, man. No, that was great. Yeah, I kept him. I tipped him, I think, two or three bucks as well. And it just <laughs> kept adding up. I mean, there were like at least 30 people in there combined yeah. and throughout the course of the night. So, no, that was great. Yeah, that was great. So it's hard to come back, man. It's hard to come back to work. Now, you're in San Diego now, right? That's right. We are in San Diego. Our team is entirely here. We have one person in San Francisco, but for the most part, this is where we were. our company was born and raised. Okay. Now, you guys were in San Francisco, though, you told me, right? So yeah, we actually entered a startup accelerator, Plug and Play Tech Center. Um, we got into the program through a pitch event in San Diego, and then our entire team was there from about January through March, so 10 weeks. And it's a program that basically tries to accelerate startups, mentor them, make key introductions for startups, um, give them great exposure, and all of that we definitely got through the program. Oh, nice. So how was that being in San Francisco? I'm sure you've been there before. Well, actually, yeah, we have that history. You used to live there, right? Yeah, exactly. I lived there for most of my life since I was about five years old and up until about five years ago before I moved to San Diego. So um, most of my life knows the Bay Area. I worked in Silicon Valley. I went to school in Berkeley. I went to high school in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived in the peninsula. So that is kind of my my first home. And now San Diego has definitely grown to be my, my current home now. You know, living in the Bay Area, I used to work in Berkeley, too. I don't know if I told you that. I used to work at a company called Urban Ore there. And that was uh, the brainchild of a guy named Dan Knapp, who was a retired sociologist who started this with his wife, Mary Lou. And they started salvaging from the landfill there, or rather from the... Well, yeah, at the time it was the landfill in Berkeley was right down there by the water that's since been moved. But yeah, they salvaged there. And that was what I did part days. I salvaged at the transfer station where people would dump things off. And then I would uh, do recycling of metals the rest of the day. That was one of the best jobs I ever had, man. And I also found some of the coolest stuff I've ever found in my entire life. Oh, that's awesome. A lot of people might not think that that 
is a terribly glamorous activity, but I love the idea of being able to take things that someone would deem as just garbage, throwaway, no use in this world, and reclaiming its value and bringing it back to society. And you know, I've I've done things like composting with the worms, and there's some satisfaction in that that I can't quite explain. Yes, the weirdest thing. It's like you're dealing with a, a little minute creature's crap, but it's turning garbage into soil. And there's some incredibly powerful just satisfaction in knowing that you're able to accomplish that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the name that he had chosen, Urban Ore, was the whole idea that people are throwing away things that for Mm -hmm. other people, it's gold, it's ore, it's something that we can mine and that we can reuse. And that, uh, you know, that applies to gardening and also to junking. I've been junking for years. And if if I made a full list of the things that I had found, people would say that I was lying. Starting with $1,000 in cash would be the first on the list. You found $1,000 in cash at the transfer station in Berkeley? Wow. Long been spent, man. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, okay, so Airbits. Airbits is moving forward with great guns, man. And, you know, I always wonder, you know, what is the appeal of a wallet, of a Bitcoin wallet or altcoin wallet, if we're not even sure that, you know, with the regulations and what other countries are doing and all the negative stuff, you know, half of the world isn't even sure that Bitcoin's going to be around, you know, in five years or 10 years anyway. So, you know, why are people putting all of this infrastructure into something that may not even be here in five years? That's kind of me playing the devil's advocate. The thing is that you have to believe in it and believe that there's a chance. And it's the same thing that anyone has to ask themselves when you launch a startup is that it might not be around. doesn't mean you don't do it. And if you're going to do something because you know it's going to be around, you're already too late to the party. Hmm. And you really need to, in the wise words of, I believe it was Paul Graham from Y Combinator, you live in the future and then build what's missing. Hmm. And so everyone that is living Bitcoin is really living in the future because it's not what, what a lot of people would call, it's not here today yet. But we're building the infrastructure to be prepared for when it happens. And we're also building the infrastructure to make it happen because it won't happen without us building the infrastructure. You know, a million, a billion people aren't going to start using Bitcoin from where it was in day one when Satoshi released the first iteration of his source code to the wild, right? You actually do have to build it. So it's, you know, it's a bit of a catch-22. Someone's got to build it for it to arrive, but then it's also got to arrive for all that effort to be worth something. Um, we're, we're taking the stance that we can contribute heavily to bringing it here sooner and bringing it to more people, non-technical people. And that's what we've aimed to do with our infrastructure and our wallet and our user experience. I like it. So let's go back in time for a minute. How was Airbits initially born? Who started Airbits and why? Um, mostly it started from the pain points that I had experienced as a Bitcoin user. I you know, bought my first Bitcoin in 2013 and then immediately tried to use it, you know, whether or not it's I had a gain or a loss. I tried to use it from a currency point of view, from a send money to someone else point of view. Mm-hmm. And I quickly saw, like, oh my God, this thing has a tremendous potential, but at the same time is so much more difficult than it needs to be and so much more unfamiliar than it needs to be. And, you know, I started going to a lot of the, the meetups, the conferences and the events and started networking with people and found some people that kind of shared similar goals and shared um, concerns and also shared passion for making Bitcoin successful, right? At its heart, that's the passion that we have as a team is we want to make Bitcoin successful. So pretty quickly, actually, within a month or two, I, I couldn't focus at my current job uh, working in small business. And I said, okay, it's time to get back into technology. It's hmm. been almost 10 years, but I think we can, we can do this. And um, quit my job in around September, October of 2013 and started writing the white paper, the, the architecture design for, for the Airbits wallet. And you know, our team kind of came together decently quick. And by January, um, we had our team together and actually full crank, full steam ahead uh, developing. So it was an idea that I had early on, but you know, bouncing that idea off a few other people. And it's morphed over time, for sure, uh, especially the intricate details, the technical details have definitely morphed over time. But I think I was the catalyst. Um, but after that, Quite a lot of great minds came together to make it actually happen. Okay, so how many people is Airbits now? So now we are four full-time co-founders. Uh, we've got our part-time CFO and also one of our investors. Um, we have also one, two, three employees, one developer and two people that do quality assurance and uh, curation of the merchant directory and um, just general you know, user support. And so we're a team of about you know, eight, nine folks, and we just brought on a chief operating officer who is our one person based out of San Francisco, and he 
comes to us with a lot of experience in the financial fintech startup space and in Bitcoin as well. Hmm. So we're super happy to have him on board and he's going full steam ahead with um, our fundraising round and making some of those key introductions and also a lot of the strategy that we're looking at doing long term, you know, both six months down the line and also two years down the line. I see. You know, when these small businesses, these startups are trying to get going, how difficult is it to get the funding? And obviously, it's very important. A lot of these projects and platforms couldn't exist without the funding, right? But how difficult right. is it to get that funding? You know, I think timing is really, really critical. Um, the space that we're in with Bitcoin does have a lot of passionate people that care about it and want to invest money in it, especially the early rounds of funding in Bitcoin where people investing in companies because, well, they wanted Bitcoin to succeed and they're really investing in their other stash of Bitcoin, hmm. you know. And now we're seeing a lot of institutional investment come into the space where they're looking very closely in detail about your financials, your projections, your team and everything. And we're okay with that. We think we have an incredibly solid team. Um, but it's uh, one of the challenges is that you know, with Bitcoin, it's a financial technology and there's a lot of overlap between different companies. So, you know, even though a lot of people liken Bitcoin to the internet and it's going to grow and we have all these different applications, there's still a significant amount of overlap. And so one of the challenges that I think you know, we face, and I'm sure a lot of other companies that are doing similar things to Airbits face, is that a lot of investment has already been made in similar plays. And so you know, we hit the challenge of saying, like, you know, we, you know, our solution, although expandable in the future, is at its heart right now a wallet. Mm -hmm. And a lot of major investors have already invested in the wallet space with a lot of companies that, even though it might be different, they still tag as being, okay, I've already made a, a wallet investment. Mm -hmm. So therefore, they may not be looking at, at the, the full landscape of companies such as us or, or other players in the market. So that's, that's one of the challenges. But the nice thing is there's still new investors coming into the space, and they're looking to make their mark and looking to support the ecosystem. And they're very excited about Bitcoin and blockchain technology. And so we're pretty confident that we can still find that type of capital of people that are looking to not necessarily just jump on the bandwagon, but really support the ecosystem in different angles because we are very different from, I think, every other solution out there. You know, the Airbits wallet, obviously it does not host users' funds um, on the servers like uh, in the classic Mt. Gox style, right? And right. Uh, obviously all of your data is encrypted, right, using the user's login and password. So how would you distinguish your wallet, the Airbits wallet, from another one? How would you brag about the Airbits wallet saying, we've got this, but these guys don't have that? Not that that's the name of the game to put yourself against another company, but you yeah. know, what do you guys have to offer that is going to you know, get people excited? Maybe it's someone you know, thinking about joining your team. Maybe it's somebody thinking about using the wallet, a user, uh, or somebody you know, thinking about investing. Um, from the viewpoint of our product, uh, I think our product and the platform is pretty unique in that it provides what we call the most familiar user experience to 99% of the population that's accustomed to, say, mobile banking. So if you can handle mobile banking, which is, for the most part, it's, you, know, you create a, an account, so username and a password, mm -hmm. maybe a PIN, and you can access that account from multiple devices. You lose your phone, you use that same username and password on another device, and there's your account. So giving that same username and password to another person or just using it on two different devices allows you to access concurrently that same account on multiple machines. And mm -hmm. even though it feels like you know, mobile banking, underneath the covers, it's true Bitcoin, it's true blockchain. And what we've done is we've abstracted all the complexities of local client-side encrypted private keys and metadata and then peer-to-peer -peer encrypted synchronization through distributed servers and you know, all the weird techno babble. All of that happens in the background, but what it feels like to the end user is simply, oh, I'm logging in. Hmm. When in reality, you're not logging into a server, you are authenticating with a server and then downloading your encrypted data mm -hmm. and then encrypting it and then synchronizing it with multiple devices. And people can do, try this today. Like if you have a tablet and you have a phone, mm -hmm. um, download Airbits on both of them, log in into both of them, and you know, do a transaction on one, it shows up on the other. Edit the metadata on one device, and this is another thing where we really set ourselves apart, is that users can tag their transactions with very rich metadata, such as who's the person I paid, what's the category, you know, add some notes. Hmm. Um, and so you can put that metadata on one device, and within about half a minute, 30, 30 to 60 seconds, you'll see that show up on your other device. Hmm. It just synchronizes in the background. You don't even know th that it's happening. It just happens invisibly from the user. And just that usage case, already gives them 
an account where they 100% control their funds. So Airbits has no capability of sending or sending their funds out. Uh, they 100% control their funds and they're automatically encrypted to protect against a stolen device and they're automatically backed up in case they lose their device. So that to us are, are the key fundamental pieces of familiarity is that people don't expect to back up their money. Don't, they don't expect to have to add encryption. They just expect it to work. Create an account, use it, use it on, on another device. That's simple. And that's what we deliver to the Bitcoin ecosystem that simply no other platform gives. Um, and the closest things to that are the, are the Bitcoin bank accounts where they host your money, they host your funds. Um, you're not the one that has control of them. You just have a promise. And they're familiar because they are banks and people are used to banks. Right. And so we're delivering the feel of mobile banking. But once again, you really, really own your Bitcoin. Yeah, I think that people really need to start drawing a distinction between, uh, and some people are, Andreas Antonopoulos has talked about it extensively, you know, between something that looks like a bank and something that actually is a bank. And he's saying, you know, the ones that actually are banks, when it comes mm -hmm. to your Bitcoins, don't keep your Bitcoins there, period. Just don't keep right, them there. Right, they don't. Yeah. Right, it, it, exactly. may, it may look like a bank, but like what you're saying is you're trying to offer a user experience that's something they're familiar with, but you're not a bank. Exactly. We're not a bank at all. And so we're trying to bridge that gap. And I think that's a really important thing is you can't introduce completely brand new paradigms and expect mass adoption in a short period of time. And so we're trying to introduce a familiar paradigm and help adoption in that sense. Because clearly, if you look at the, the Bitcoin solutions that are getting most adopted, it's the ones that are not introducing a new paradigm. Right. It's the ones that are banks. And so yeah. we think that's really unfortunate because we lose so much of the core benefits of Bitcoin when you're using a Bitcoin bank, you know, a custodial account. So many of the benefits that we rave about are effectively lost, especially if you look at it from a long-term point of view. Um, those get lost when you have a custodial account. Yeah. And we want to retain the core benefits, but with the familiarity that people are used to. And so far, the feedback has been tremendously positive. The people that are setting up other people with Bitcoin wallets appreciate that, that level of familiarity. You know, you've seen the billboards where they're advertising a new bank and they always have some happy looking people. They're usually a family and they say, mm -hmm. you know, a new kind of bank or whatever. I'm thinking of an Airbits billboard that basically just says Airbits. We're not a bank and people are just running to it. Thank you. Yeah, us. exactly. <laughs> Something been, that's not a bank. We can trust it. We've been pitching our company in a, in a, in a cool, uh, unique way and comparing it to a lot of the uh, innovation that's happening in the technology space. And uh, a really cool analogy is how companies like Uber, you know, and Uber is now actually the world's largest taxi cab company. Yeah, I heard that. Right? But they don't own any cars. Right. <laughs> and uh, Facebook is now the world's largest media company, but they don't create any content. Boo, Facebook. Right? Boo, Facebook, <laughs> but they are the largest media company. And Airbnb <laughs> being the, the world's largest provider of accommodations, mm -hmm. but they own no property. Right. And we think the world is moving in this direction where technology connects people to the value. And so we would like to be the world's largest financial company that holds no money. Nice. And wow. we think that that's going to happen. You know, whether it's us or another company, Bitcoin is going to deliver that, that vision. And we're pretty confident we're in the forefront of that because we bring that familiarity um, and the user experience that people need to be able to own their own money. Um, and there is so much more value and there's so much more power in connecting people to the value than there is in trying to be that that single source of value, mm -hmm. right? Than being the taxi cab company or being that that owner of a whole bunch of property of, of hotels, right? It's it's much more valuable to connect people to the to what they're looking for. Absolutely, you know, people are feeling that these days. The only thing is because advertising is so strong and because there's so much money that goes into advertising, people don't really know the difference right now. Like, for instance, if you say a custodial account, what does that mean? The only thing that your average American associates with a custodian is from their high school. The guy that cleaned up in the hallways was the custodian, and there was a custodial closet. So <laughs> we're really a, really a country of ignoramuses, sadly. I, I think we're getting smarter in certain ways. I think we're getting dumber in other ways. I think that... No, for sure. If you're listening to this and you still watch television, I think you need to stop. <laughs> if you're, exactly. you got to listen to podcasts. Yeah, or keep watching television, but don't let your kids. Do you keep a smoky house? You know, do you keep sharp objects around? No real difference, right? This is something that's dangerous for young minds. Okay, I've had my say. It's so true. We are somewhat of a 
an ignorant kind because media is powerful and politics are powerful. But, you know, you brought up a good point. It's like most people don't care, don't really know what the difference is between a custodial account and a non-custodial account where you own your keys. But I'll tell you this, and a lot of people don't realize this, is that they're going to know, not because of preachers like myself. They're going to know because they're actually going to run into the issues. And we mentioned how Bitcoin has its advantages and the advantages stem from it being decentralized. Well, if you start using a custodial account, especially over the long term, you will hit some of those disadvantages. And I, as a Bitcoin user early on, hit those disadvantages. And one of those is simply you cannot reliably send out your funds. Right. You have no guarantee that your funds will get sent out when you need them to get sent out because of the pooling of multiple users' funds and most of that pool being offline and cold storage. Right. That's number one. Number two, people are already hitting the issue that you can't get your funds sent to where you want it sent because of blacklisting of certain addresses and locations. Right. And that was one of Bitcoin's biggest advantages is that there is no bias in Bitcoin. Right, it's every address is another address. It's fully functionable, and you send it. It doesn't matter where the address is. But now, when you once you have a custodial account, they now have to abide by the rules that define custodial accounts, and so they do have to to blacklist addresses if they're asked to do so. Sure. Whether or not it's there's a good reason or not. Right. It could be just a hunch. It could be just a complete hunch. Like you know, we think that something you know illicit is happening at this address. Okay, right. you can't send money to it. You know, and this is one of the biggest issues of the financial system. It's what creates a ton of cost into the financial system is all of this regulatory burden, the, the anti-fraud burden, even if it's just all a bunch of false negatives or false positives. I agree. You know, I mean, look at Coinbase. Coinbase has not been around that long, but what are they, two or three years old only? But if somebody else wanted to start their own Coinbase right now, it would be a lot more difficult to get in, a lot more expensive than when Coinbase started, right? And so that's, you know, basically it's punitive, but it's also really, in a sense, I mean, maybe not by design, but it looks like it's designed to keep new players out. The, the regulatory burden definitely has an aspect of design to keep the, the monopolies in place. Yes. So banks, have, banks really are the ones that, banks and also large Corporations are the ones that establish law. I mean, don't don't fool yourself into thinking that lawmakers establish law because it's the people that have the money to fund the lawmakers are the ones that are establishing the law. I agree. So, luckily, there's a few holes in the law that allow um, Bitcoin companies to kind of squeak in and say, "Hey, you know, something per the law. This is actually how this should get regulated or not regulated." And so that allows companies to innovate in ways that banks can't. And so one example of that is. Um, how we are actually trying to provide a similar service to the buy-sell companies such as you know, the, the Coinbase's and the circles of the world with a core advantage of decentralization by our side. And what I mean by that is as opposed to us trying to hold the value, trying to be the exchange and deal with the regulatory landscape in every jurisdiction that we'd like to offer buy-sell service, uh, we're launching buy-sell through third-party partners the companies that actually are local in the different jurisdictions, whether it be Canada, U.S., Mexico, Philippines. And they've gone and they've done the work to uh, figure out what's needed with banking relationships and with a regulatory environment. And then we simply connect people to them through the application. Same way Airbnb connects people to these accommodations, we will connect people to the exchange services. And that allows us to scale and offer buy-sell capabilities in more countries over a short period of time versus us, ourselves, you know, we're from San Diego. We don't know what that banking relationship looks like, you know, in Kenya, right. if there even is one, or in, you know, Europe. So um, we'd rather let the locals benefit from the work that they do, but also benefit from us connecting them to the rest of the global digital economy. And so that's our vision is, yes, we can enter the space and actually offer buy-sell and offer the same user experience as a lot of the incumbents, but do it in a, such a way that people still hold their own Bitcoin, they hold their own value, and they're not going to get goxed. Nice. That's, that's what we think is a, a, a very important value proposition and something that will trump a lot of the centralized options. 
Absolutely. You know, and we just really need these days moving forward. We need more talk about decentralization in every facet, in every way, because again, still there are a lot of people who just don't know when you say something is decentralized or you say something is centralized or you talk in terms of hierarchies, uh, you know, in business and in banking and in politics, people just don't know these words. It seems these days, I think they're learning these words. I think of course the tech movement, the people in the tech world, um, they're kind of leading the charge. And now we have the financial world joining in. It's hard to tell where it's going to go, man. It's a weird world now. It's hard to tell where it's going to go, but you can see some some light at the end of the tunnel and you can see how decentralization is potentially going to affect the day-to-day things that have been centralized in the past. And one of the ways that you can easily tell or educate someone on it is when they start to experience some of the pain points of centralized infrastructure. Like I tried to get access to my bank, but they're closed. That's because they're centralized. I tried to send Bitcoin from this wallet. It sits there pending for a long, 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 long time. Well, that's because they're centralized. You know, or this failed and this is unreliable. Well, that's because they're centralized. Or I'm not allowed to do something. My provider of whatever that providing service is just says, sorry, we're not letting you do this. Well, permission tends to be a very centralized thing that happens. Mm -hmm. So um, people will start to feel it. And before, they just accepted it. They just said, oh, that's just the way the world works. But now, options start to come into play where it's like, oh, you know something? You don't have to use this. You can use that. Hmm. And those pain points start to get alleviated. And I think that's where people will start to care. Right now, they don't care because they don't know that there's another option or that option isn't all that widespread. Right. But as we start to present these alternatives, it's the same sense that, you know, even though it's not fully decentralized, there's the same sense that, you know, Lyft and Uber are a more decentralized version of a taxi cab company and people feel the difference. Yes. Right? The user experience is just simply better. Oh, yeah. And if you provide a better user experience from a distributed architecture, a decentralized architecture, people will feel it and they'll want it. And that's our goal. Walk our listeners, if you would, through the process of using an Airbits wallet. Yeah, sure. So you download the app. Uh, it's available for iPhone and for Android. Um, as soon as you download it and launch it, there's a big red Create Account button. You tap on that button. You choose a username. Hopefully, it's one that someone else hasn't chosen. You don't have to enter your email or your phone number or your actual real name. Just choose a username and then pick a password. It does have to be a pretty good password, 10 digits, upper, lowercase, and a number. That's it, and most people can handle that. Um, repeat the password the second time and put in a four-digit PIN, and that is it. It takes a few seconds to create your account because it is applying pretty good, strong encryption, and it's backing it up onto multiple servers. But after that, you have a fully functional wallet that can send and receive, and it's fully backed up, it's fully encrypted. You can then take that same username and password and go to another device, log in, and have access to your funds. What about the fear that people have of keyloggers? The nice thing is on, on mobile devices, malware such as keyloggers are far, far, far less, uh, less rampant. Um, there are things that we can do going forward to even eliminate that. Um, we don't have those in place such as putting in a fake keyboard. So when you tap, you're not actually tapping on the system keyboard, but you're tapping instead on just a bunch of icons. So there are measures that we can take. We haven't put those in yet. But for the most part, key loggers are far more rampant on desktop devices because the, the sandboxing, which is the separation of one app from accessing another app, is far better on a mobile device. I haven't heard of a, a key logger having a successful uh, lifespan on a, on a mobile device in quite some time. Okay, good. And so that to me isn't too big of a uh, too big of a concern, especially if you don't root your phone and you don't don't jailbreak it. And me personally, I don't install third-party keyboards. Right, I use a keyboard that comes natively with the phone. Yeah. As soon as you install a third-party keyboard, then you kind of have to trust that third party as opposed to trusting your primary uh, phone vendor. So you have to trust your primary phone vendor not to put malware on there. Obviously, it's not perfect, but you want to limit how many people you're having to trust. Once you put on a keyboard, then you're having to trust your primary phone vendor and the guy that made your keyboard program. All right, so I keep it to stock keyboard on my phone. Um, and that I feel fairly confident in you know, preventing key loggers and screen captures and things like that. Okay, so Airbits is a great mobile wallet. Is it also used by people just using their desktop? So it's not available on desktop. The code can be ported over to the desktop. It actually... The way we've written our technology is such that 80, 90% of the, the effort is put into a core of our wallet. It implements all the encryption, the backup, the synchronization, the Bitcoin transaction signing, all the really nitty-gritty gory details 
And all of that is cross-platform. It can run on mobile, it can run on desktop, it can run on the server. All you have to do is write the GUI, the user interface on top of it. So it can be ported, it just hasn't yet, and we, you know, we have a fairly small team. And our take is the highest, highest priority is mobile. Yes. Because the world is moving towards mobile. I know people that don't even fire up their desktop anymore. They do all their email, web browsing, everything on a mobile device. Yeah. And so we'll take care of that first. Make that the best user experience we possibly can do on a mobile device. And then we'll see where we're, where we're missing. What's now left that people are looking for? What, what functionality are they looking for on their desktop? And then fill in the blanks there. And maybe there isn't anything left. Or maybe we just need a simple, uh, simple little plug-in that's not the full wallet. Maybe it's just an export. So sure. they can export their financial transactions to Quicken, right? And that's it. They don't actually need to do send and receive, hopefully. You know, I'm old-fashioned, and so I know that the world is moving toward mobile and mobile devices, and every app that comes out is coming out for a mobile device. Obviously, that's where the money is. That's where the movement is, right? But, uh, man, I am still so old-fashioned. I tell people, man, the last thing in the world I want to do is to be out in the world checking my email on a screen the size of half of a grilled cheese sandwich. I mean, (laughs) if I'm going to surf the Internet, man, I want to be looking at this pretty substantial size screen, and I certainly don't want to have my neck craned down i have a neck issue anyway so partially i think from staring down at a computer for so long i finally had to get a larger screen that sets up higher and uh basically connect that to my laptop just so that it helped my neck problem no i hear you i mean content creation and um to some degree some aspect of content consumption is still much more preferable on a laptop and i'm still on my laptop quite a bit but we're finding as user interfaces improve, yeah. uh, people are able to figure out how to deliver that functionality on a small screen yeah. without compromising a lot, and especially the touch interface. I'm actually finding that I can do something so much better on the phone than I can on the computer just because there's just better touch interfaces that are smoother and more fluid than tapping and click and dragging things on the desktop. So there's a fine balance. But the nice thing about the space that we're in, which is you know a financial application, a wallet, sending and receiving value. You know, if you look at the word wallet, there's never been a point in history where a wallet did not fit in your back pocket, right? And we expect it to fit there. And so that's what we're trying to do is build that wallet with a tremendous amount of functionality beyond what your leather wallet can handle and still have it fit in your back pocket. And then analyze what you actually need to do on the desktop. You know, find, do that research after we've built our first iteration, which is, you know, good, solid, high functional mobile wallet. And then we'll see after that. And so I invite you to also give us that kind of feedback is if you use Airbits in a mobile device and ask yourself then like when do I feel like the urge to actually you know use it on the desktop what is it you're trying to do um, what's the functionality that you're in need of and that'll give us an idea of what do we need to implement whether it's the full wallet on a desktop or if it's maybe just a way to transfer an address to the desktop or to pay an address on the desktop um, that's what we'd love to hear, that kind of feedback from users you know, such as yourself or anyone else out there listening to the show. So using the Airbits mobile wallet, what are the top three things that people are saying they like? The funny thing is we have so much privacy that we don't know what they're doing inside of our wallet. We don't even really know. We don't know what the, the, the transaction tagging and whatnot. What people tell, what people tell us that they like about it, I'll say that much. Like sure. We have gotten any feedback that's been um, very positive. Um, people do say that they like the ease of account creation. Like it's a familiar process to create an account. They love being able to tag their transactions to be able to say, oh, this this transaction came from here. You know, here's what it went to. Here's mm-hmm. the category, the notes. Being able to do that. Um, and then also the familiarity and the fluidity of the interface. Just the general, it doesn't look intimidating. Um, you know, that I can, I, I clearly have one tap to go to send. It's not tap, send, and then this and that, and then scan a QR code. And these are very subtle things that you don't really put bullet points on your box to say that you support this. But we really target trying to get users from A to B mm-hmm. in the fewest amount of steps. Like if you want to send money, you shouldn't have to tap three times before you scan a QR code. Right. Get the user logged in, tap, and then boom, you're already scanning a QR code. If you want to transfer money between your wallets, get that process very fast and fluid. So... A lot of people are raving about that aspect of the of the wall. It's like, oh my god, all I have to do is do this, and uh, they have that functionality, or things like being able to request money from people over SMS and email. That's somewhat available in other wallets, but um, people have raved about the ability to do that. But then once the money comes in, it automatically gets tagged with that person that they requested the money from. I don't have to guess and say where did that money come from. 
right? It knows, the wallet just knows, hey, you sent this email over to John Barrett. And, you know, he paid that a month later, even though you wanted him to pay the next day, he paid it a month later. And you might forget that that was him. Well, the wallet remembers that that was him that you sent that request to. Well, I think that's huge, man. A smart wallet is what everybody wants. I mean, yeah, it, it drives me crazy when you have to, you know, really remember something that you shouldn't have to remember, or there's a, there's mystery there, or like you said, there's multiple steps that just are not necessary. That uh, that kind of user experience, that's the future where things are truly intuitive, unlike certain sites where nothing is intuitive. I would have to say the biggest perpetrator of this horrendous crime against humanity is Yahoo. And oh, uh, I still have my Yahoo mail because for certain reasons, because I have massive amounts of information there in folders. And uh, after, you know, what, 12 years of having the same exact same Yahoo account, exact same Yahoo email. But man, the stuff that they change, I'm convinced that they sit down in a room with a group of mm -hmm. people and they say, how can we make life difficult for people? <laughs> how can we hurt people? And the other perpetrators of crimes against humanity are the auto manufacturers that make the bucket seats. You know, they figured out, and the people that make the seats for restaurants, they figured out we've got to make it really slant back. We can't have a flat surface that you can sit on. It's got a really slant back. So people that have bad backs, their backs are going to get worse and the they're going to, the and they're going to suffer. And when I find these people, if you're listening, when I find you people, it's not going to be pretty. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> hopefully you don't find those people too soon. And, um, hopefully you don't find that kind of aspect inside of Arabits. I know we at least, we strive to improve lives, although... It's actually a really tough thing when it comes to user interface design because um, there's two diametrically opposed goals. One is in intuitive, and the other is um, what I would call fluid. The, uh, and the two actually aren't necessarily, they're almost on two axes in the sense that if you make something obvious, right, like you put it right in front of the user, mm -hmm. make it very, very obvious, it tends to take more steps to do something. As an example, if I, if I um, make one big button on the screen that says login and another button that says create account, that's an example, and there's two gigantic buttons on the screen and there's nothing else, that's intuitive, right? That's pretty intuitive. Now, that means that I have to click login and then I get another screen that says enter your, enter your username. Okay, enter my username and then I hit next. Now enter your password and then you hit next. You've tapped, how many times have you tapped the button just to enter your username and your password to log in? Right. You've had probably two or three unnecessary taps, but, but it's intuitive. It's very obvious. Now if you pollute the first screen a little bit more and you say, okay, well, I'm going to create an account. Here's a text field to log in, and then there's the button to actually log in. It's more fluid because I can enter what I need to enter and hit go, and then I'm logged in. Nice. But it's not as intuitive. Right, so they're, yeah. they're they're fairly diametrically opposed, and it's a really tough balance to find. Um, and we we definitely struggle amongst ourselves on you know, a weekly basis, like how intuitive do we want to make something versus how fluid do we want to make it? Once you have a person that knows what to do, right? Who do you alienate? The person that knows what to do versus the person that's trying to figure out what to do. Um, and they're very different goals. Well. In the future, the machine will be able to tell this is the person's first time using this or their second or third or 1,000th time, and it will adjust accordingly. It will morph to, but that's a fascinating discussion about the, the difference there in the fine line. Exactly, and I think that might be what you're experiencing in things like Yahoo, where you're a person that knows where things were. Like, you know, like, hey, this is where it was. I'm used to that. And now what they're thinking, they're starting to think of, well, we want to get more new users and these people that have used these other platforms that are not Yahoo, how do we bring them into the fold? Well, they potentially have to alienate some of their old users in order to bring something that's familiar and intuitive to the new users. And then you just, you, you know, you got to upset somebody. It's really hard to find that balance. But then they have people working for them who are just insane. So you're typing an email, you're getting ready to send. Why, in the name of Yahweh, would you have to scroll down to hit the send button? The send button should be at the top, not at the bottom. Yahoo people, Yahoo developers, if any of you are listening, <laughs> I'm coming after you. I'm coming after you, people. 
Anyway. Oh man, getting harsh on him. <laughs> well, I haven't used Yahoo in a while, so I guess I can't really complain at this point yet. I no, nobody's using. some time. Nobody's using Yahoo. And every once in a while, I get an email from someone and says, you know, somebody, somebody at Hotmail, like, wow, I thought I was really <laughs> <laughs> behind. It's like that's cool, but um, you know, we're uh, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks, as they say. But yeah, I don't know how to get away from Yahoo again because I have all of these folders and this massive amount of information. It's gotten to the point with them, and I really hope they're not listening because they'll they'll catch on to this if they were to say from now on in order to use your yahoo and access all of this information it's going to cost you fifty dollars a month it's extraordinary i'd have to pay that ex you know that extortion money because i'd have to access all of this information that i have stored there so it, it troubles me every once in a while but i do know from the past having lost hard drives i still have these hard drives just haven't retrieved the feeling is that the world is over, that you cannot function without everything you had on that hard drive. <laughs> yeah. And then as you make it through the next week and two, you realize, well, I didn't need that shit. Because <laughs> <laughs> you haven't looked it up in, in, in three years. You're like, well, what are the odds I'm going to need it now? Exactly. It's hilarious. Well, man, Airbit sounds fantastic. And I am going to load it onto my Galaxy S5 here when we finish and check it out, man. I'm really looking forward to it. So, Paul, tell our listeners, if you would, where they go and where I go to download the uh, Airbits Wallet app. Um, yes, if you want to download the wallet, just go to airbits.co. It's our webpage, A-I-R-B-I-T-Z.co. And then there's links to the, the Play Store and links to the App Store. Or you can just search for it in either one of those App Stores. Um, for the people that, uh, and this isn't quite on our website yet, but for the people that do not have access to the Google Play Store, such as in certain countries, or if you're running an open source version of uh, Google Android, you can actually go to airbits.co slash download, and that will get you the direct APK. Oh, nice. Um, but, you know, for those few people that are doing that. But otherwise, you can just go to any of the app stores and, and get our app. And definitely, please, after you've given it a try, send us some feedback. You can send it directly to me, paul at airbits.co, um, or feel free to tweet us or look for us on Facebook. We're pretty easy to find. I think we're all over social media. Um, our website gives you pretty good avenues to contact us, and we'd love to hear what people think of the product and uh, tips for improvements, suggestions, comments, uh, concerns. Yeah, I love that. You know, I hadn't heard many examples of where you don't have to go to the Play Store to download the app, so I love that they can do that directly. That's great. They can do that directly. It's uh, We do put you know, a good handful of, of security to make sure that that app is being downloaded and it's actually coming from us, not from someone else, um, because that is a very sensitive piece of security. Once you host a wallet on a website, you want to make sure you're actually getting uh, the right content. But um, it is there for those people that don't have access to the app stores. And, um, you know, we look forward to hearing from people. Definitely try it out. John, I want to hear your feedback as well. Let us know what you like or dislike about it. And we're always looking to improve. We iterate the app on a very frequent basis you know, with people's feedback and or every release is a significant improvement over the previous. Okay, great. Listeners, you've been listening to Paul Puey, the CEO and co-founder of airbits.co. That's A-I-R-B-I-T-Z dot C-O. Paul, thank you so much for being on Bitcoins and Gravy. Hey, John, thanks a whole bunch. Look forward to seeing you at another one of those uh, Bitcoin events. I hear you. Hey, thanks a million, Paul. Yeah, no problem. Thanks so much, John. Take care. Bye-bye. Now climb aboard, y'all. This train is bound for glory. And there's plenty of room for all. Well, Satoshi Nakamoto, that's a name I love to say. And we don't know much about him, but he came to save the day. When he wrote about the way things are and the way things are to be, he gave us all a protocol this world had never seen. A Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain. A Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain. Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. told about the death of old Mount Gox, about traders trading altar coins and miners mining blocks. But them good old boys back in Illinois and on down through Tennessee, see they don't care to be a millionaire, they're just wanting to be free. Oh Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain, oh Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain, till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. Man. 
There's a virtuality, a promise to deliver us from age-old tyranny. A Bitcoin as you're going into the old blockchain. A Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain. Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your Give me some exposure. Everybody knows your name, sing it. Oh, Lord, pass me some more. Oh, Lord, before I have to go. Oh, Lord, pass me some more. Oh, Lord, before I have to go. I'd like to thank my guest on today's show, Mr. Paul Puey, the founder and CEO of Airbits.co, the company that offers you one of the safest and most user-friendly Bitcoin wallets on the planet. Check out Airbits.co, download the app, and enjoy what the future has to offer. Friends, the future is now. Oh, and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of Bitcoins and Gravy. This past week, I had the privilege of sitting on my front porch and chatting with three great fellows from the BitShares community who are on a road trip traveling around the region telling people about BitShares. I learned more about BitShares from these guys in one hour than I have in reading about BitShares over the past year. This is a no-miss episode, friends. And a few quick announcements. I am still looking for a brain wallet expert to interview on the show. That's right, folks. Writer Max Hernandez has come up once again with some amazing new short fiction. And the subject this time is brain wallets. In conjunction with reading Max's recent works on the show, I would like to interview a brain wallet expert. Now, you don't have to be certified or anything. You just have to know about brain wallets and be able to tell our listeners how to create a brain wallet. I'm looking for someone who can tell us all about brain wallets, when and why to use them, the benefits of using them, and the potential dangers. If you are a brain wallet expert, or think you are, email me now at howdy at bitcoinsandgravy.com. That's howdy, H-O-W-D-Y, at bitcoinsandgravy.com. And great news, listeners, our transcription page is now live on the website. Thanks to the continuing hard work of one of our loyal listeners who is also a consultant to the show. These professional transcriptions are provided each week by one of our fans who can be found at diaryofafreelancetranscriptionist.com. And of course, you can find a link to this website in the weekly show notes. And if you've enjoyed the show, please take a minute to scan my QR code or copy my public key and send me 50 cents in Bitcoin. If you'll do this every once in a while, it will help me out more than you know. Folks, it's not easy being a podcast host, trust me, and putting in 10 hours each week to produce the show sometimes takes its toll. Remember that giving someone a small tip in Bitcoin is what makes Bitcoin folks stand out in this world. I know personally that whenever I give a tip to someone on Reddit or Let's Talk Bitcoin or one of the forums, I feel better about myself knowing that I've given back just a little to help that person continue creating great content. And signing off now from East Nashville, Tennessee, I'm your host, John Barrett, here with my dog, Maxwell. Say goodbye, Maxwell. Join us again next week for another episode of Bitcoins and Gravy. And until then, y'all be good to each other out there. And remember, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing. Do something, y'all. Brothers and sisters, I stand before you today a humble servant of the mighty God Almighty. For in her infinite wisdom, she has spoken to me, filling my heart and my mind and my mouth with words of comfort that you may find peace and harmony in these troubled times. We are living in a time
of uncertainty and turmoil in a nation that verily has fallen prey to hawks and wolves and sharks and whales. Get thee behind me, Satan, and stay put, fool. Stay put, fool. Get on back there, Satan. Get on back. There is at this very moment before us a great battle raging that will test the fortitude and integrity of every man, woman, and child in this great nation of ours and indeed throughout the world. In simple terms, it is a battle of right over might. We the people know intuitively what is right when it comes to our freedoms and the peace that we must have for our children and our families. But on the other side, on the other side is darkness. Lining up in formation with the true forces of evil are those men and women who would seek to destroy us through intimidation and fear-mongering, through subjugation and disrespect for human life, through inequality and racism, through bigotry, through chaos, through war, and now through the engineering of ignorance and poverty. Wolves in sheep's clothing, hawks in midair, brothers and sisters, beware! Tell it like it is, Johnny, tell it like it is! But do not despair, do not despair! For in these, the darkest of times, verily we have a light, a beacon, a truth so powerful that no darkness, no force of evil can overtake it or overcome it. For as the war profiteers in their bunkers of sin, as the feds kick the can down the road once again, That's as right. the Wall Street gamblers place wages to win with our pensions and savings again and again, our beautiful Bitcoin flies on through the skies of virtuality, a promise to deliver us from age-old tyranny. Somebody give me an amen. Amen, brother, amen. And what are we called then to do? This is the message I bring to you. Put your love of each other above your love of money. That's all. It's simple. I wish you light worries today and heavy joys tomorrow. Brothers and sisters, namaste. I bow to the divine light in each of you. I know that it may sound absurd, but I have for you a magic word, and today the magic word is wallet, W-A-L-L-E-T, wallet, as in the sentence, the AirBits wallet is now my favorite Bitcoin wallet, and my Galaxy S5 thanks me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>